facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Hey, welcome to The Kale Clark Show on this Tuesday. It's the 22nd of August, 2023. And I'm so excited about the show because it's a very, very special feast day. I know you're going to love it. It's the Feast of the Queenship of Mary. How do we explain this to people? This is another one that our non-Catholic friends kind of scratch their heads over. But I think it's a great feast that can really help us in the ecumenical movement and actually can help Christians to come together right now over Mary. Yeah. Well, maybe. We'll see what happens. Give me a call. 888 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. You can also, of course, email the program. The address is kale, C-A-L-E, at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. And speaking of email, uh, I did get an email from, from a lady who said, when are you going to talk about Johnny Football? I know, I know. I've been promising that I, I will talk about Johnny Football. I, I hope to get to it today. We'll see. We'll see. But definitely by the end of the week, I'm not going to forget about this. Trust me. Uh, but we really want to get rolling with this. Once again, the number to call, 888 Nine one four nine. This is a really, really interesting feast day. The coronation of Mary, of course, as Queen of the Universe is one of the mysteries of the Rosary. But uh, this is a great feast day. And, and like I said off the top, this can help to explain a couple of different things to our non-Catholic Christian friends. And we, we often get questions about the intercession of Mary. You know, how can you, how can Mary pray for us? What's the deal here? Well, this again is a big answer to that question. And there's a really, there's a great biblical basis for this. There really is. And when I was doing my grad studies, actually, uh, with Dr. Craig Evans, I actually wrote a paper on this. So I really did a deep dive into it. And it's interesting that right now, going to Mass during these days, the readings for the Gospel are from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew's Gospel, this is a big theme, but it's kind of hidden. It's kind of hidden. A lot of people don't catch it upon first reading that Mary is the queen in the kingdom of God. And obviously a lot of studies when it comes to Matthew's gospel, they talk about how Jesus is a new Moses. He's clearly presented as a much greater Moses. He uses a lot of, Matthew uses a lot of what's called typology, to present Jesus as a, a new Moses. Uh, Matthew's gospel is arranged into five different sections or five different books to correspond to the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, starting off the Bible. Of course, Moses went up a mountain, Mount Sinai, comes back down with the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up the Mount of Beatitudes, comes down with the Ten Beatitudes. And Nope, there's not eight, there are ten. There's a reason for that. Another show for another day. I've talked about that before on this on this show and also on the Faith Explained program, it's really, you can't underestimate the impact of Moses on salvation history and on a proper understanding of Jesus. But there's another giant of the Old Covenant, another major figure of faith that's absolutely crucial for understanding this particular feast day as well, the Queenship of Mary, but also how God's plan unfolds throughout history, the oikonomia. This is a fancy Greek word. It means the law of the household. And this is God's family plan for his people, fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. 
Now, it's, it's interesting. There's a lot of chatter about Moses, and rightly so. Jesus fulfills the law of Moses. He's not a lawbreaker. He's a law keeper. He's a law fulfiller. We talked about that yesterday. But there's one guy that's mentioned even more than Moses in the Old Testament. Can you guess who it is? Can you guess who it is? It's David, King David. So Scott Hahn, biblical scholar, he, he actually ran some stats on this, which is really interesting. How many times does the name Moses occur in the Old Testament? The answer is 720. Now, you probably didn't know that off the top of your head. But 720 times Moses' name is mentioned in the OT. But King David is mentioned almost 1,020 times. Well beyond, what, what you know, in terms of mere mentions. David, his life and career, according to Scott Hahn, is the subject of 42 chapters of what the rabbis called the former prophets in the Old Testament. Those are the books from Joshua all the way to 2 Kings. And then the books of Chronicles, which is kind of a, also historical books about ancient Israel, David's time. It's kind of looking at it from the perspective of the priests. It's even more. The percentage of chapters that talk about David, it's even more. So Scott Hahn says this, quote, In the prophets, David is mentioned 37 times. Moses is only mentioned seven times. The hopes of the Jewish people usually find their focus in Mount Zion, which is the site of David's royal palace, rather than Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. Even today, the Jewish movement to reestablish the ancient homeland is known as Zionism, and its symbol belongs not to the lawgiver, Moses, but to the king, the star of David. End of quote. And that, that's certainly true. So David in some ways, becomes even more important than Moses. You're listening to the K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. In the book of the prophet Amos, uh, chapter 9, verse 11, there's a very famous prophecy about the kingdom of David once again will one day be restored. And it's in Amos 9, 11, And it's this, he says, In that day... I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Or sometimes it's translated as the, the fallen tent of David. And repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That's what the prophet Amos said. And that's obviously a reference to the kingdom of David somehow being rebuilt, somehow being restored. And in fact, this is, this is kind of in the air. It was kind of in the ether. Uh, during the time of Jesus, there was a lot of messianic expectation. People were talking about it in coffee shops as they were drinking their espressos. And I'm wondering, oh, actually, how about that? Just try, I got I to gotta stay caffeinated. Got to stay excited here. It's hard not to be excited on a, on a feast day like this, but I don't need any extra help. But this is what even the Jesus' own apostles were saying this to him. What, what did they say? After the resurrection, before Jesus ascended into heaven, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, what did they say to him? Lord, will you at this time restore what? The kingdom. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus could have said, guys, that's exactly what I've been doing throughout my entire earthly ministry here. Um, and in Matthew's gospel, one of the big themes is the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
the, the main message of Jesus is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew kind of changes it a little bit because, again, Matthew is a, a very Jewish gospel. It's targeted primarily to Jesus' fellow Jews to convince them that he's the Messiah. So pious Jews don't take the name of God on their lips, so he, changed his, he changes it to heaven. He calls it the kingdom of heaven, but it's the same thing, the kingdom of God. God is heaven in a certain sense, right? The life of the Trinity, sharing the life of the Trinity in heaven. You know, please God. That's that's our goal. That's our target. That's what we want to do. So that's exactly what we see Jesus doing all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, this theme of the kingdom of God, it's so explicit, you know, and ha- having to do with David, it's so explicit, it's in the incipit. I said that because it rhymes, but I'm I might be one of the few people who get that joke. What am I talking about? Well, the incipit, what, what does that mean? I-N-C-I-P-I-T. That, that is what they call the first line of the document. And a lot of ancient texts like the Gospels, the first line is really, really important. The first sentence kind of sets the tone. It's a little bit like even, even papal documents. You, you always wonder where papal documents get their names from. Why, why is... Why is Redemptoris Missio? Why is it called that? Well, that's the first line. Those are the first words of the document in Latin. It means the mission of the Redeemer by JP2. Or you can take any papal encyclical. Their names are basically from the first sentence, the first couple of words. Well, here's the first couple of words of Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of who? David the son of Abraham. Son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, it's interesting. And then, of course, you continue on to read. These readings come up during Advent time, usually, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It's this great big genealogy. If you remember phone books back in the day, reading all the names, when you're a kid, you're trying to find your friend's phone number in the age before smartphones. Hey, I, I've got to find the phone number of this place, this person. And so it's just this list of names and names and names and names and numbers. And it's kind of like that when you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And I always feel bad for for the readers, the lectors who, who get tasked with this. There's some tricky names in there. But what's the point of this? And there, there really is a point, by the way. And actually, the, the, the focal point of the whole thing, the whole genealogy, is David himself. Because David's right in the middle of it. In fact, it goes in, in verse 17, it says, you know, from Abraham to David, and then it goes from David to the deportation to Babylon. That was a great tragedy for the people of God. 586 uh, BC, the Babylonian invasion, uh, the Jews are carried off into captivity, the temple is destroyed, that Solomon built, the son of David, and a, a national tragedy on the, on the, the most prolific scale. Uh, it's, it's hard to overstate the, the importance of that in the psyche of the people. And then from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, and guess what? There are three groups of 14 generations, from Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian incident, and then from Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, three groups. And Matthew really uses something that's called gematria, which means you give a numerical value to a number. So if we were using the English alphabet, A would equal number one, B number two, that sort of thing. So in Hebrew, what 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 happens here is that Matthew kind of essentially is doing a little trick here. 
And those who have eyes to see can, can absolutely um, have their eyes wide open to what he's doing because he has three groups of 14 generations. And when you add that up, it adds up to David's name. DVD in English, right? Nobody watches those anymore, DVDs. But uh, D in Hebrew equals four. V equals six. So DVD, there's no there's no vowels in Hebrew. It's just consonants when you spell somebody's name. So it, it looks like DVD. So if you add that up, it's four, six, and four, which gives you 14. I was sick the day they taught math at school, but I think I got that right. So he's basically screaming at us. Matthew's essentially screaming at us, David, 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 14, 14, 14. The Messiah is the son of David. Joseph. Now we know that Matthew's gospel is all about, in some ways, in some ways there's just a focus on Joseph. In Luke's gospel, there's a lot of talk about Mary in the infancy narratives of Jesus because Luke probably interviewed Mary. And Mary's in Matthew as well, as we'll see. This is the Feast of the Queenship of Mary. You're going to see how this comes back to, to Mary in just a second. But there's a lot of information about Joseph in Matthew's Gospel. He's called the foster father of Jesus. And by the way, Joseph himself is also called a son of David. Uh, in, in the genealogy, it's, it's part of his lineage. And that's why Matthew says Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Of course, that's the city of David. And... Jesus, of course, was born there because of the census of Quirinius. We get that information from Luke. It's kind of extra detail. Why did Joseph have to go there to the hometown of his ancestor, David? And so Matthew doesn't really get into all of that stuff with the census. But what he does say, though, is that this fulfills prophecy. And we'll get into this when the Magi come to visit the baby Jesus. Well, he's not really a baby at that point. He's probably about two. But... This is really interesting. There's a prophecy that's fulfilled here. In Matthew, in chapter 1, verse 6, he says that a ruler, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, a ruler will shepherd my people Israel. And again, who was the shepherd ruler of Israel? It was David, the shepherd boy who made good. He became king. So this is all over the place in Matthew's gospel. David's kingdom, David's kingdom, David's kingdom. It, and Scott Hahn talks about this a lot in one of his books. It's called Reasons to Believe. It's a great little book on apologetics that he did. And he talks about in his book how Jesus really restores a lot of features of the kingdom of David as he's setting up his church, as he's setting up his ministry. In fact, in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God, by the way, is in the Old Testament. It's mentioned twice, the kingdom of God. And it's in 1 Chronicles 28, 5, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 8. But it's called the kingdom of Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the same thing. It means kingdom of God. And that's a reference to the kingdom of David. So essentially the kingdom of David was called the kingdom of God in the Old Testament. So keep that in mind whenever you hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. But really this comes into play and we get into why it's the feast day of the queenship of Mary. It, it, it's not it's not the gospel reading for this feast in all likelihood. Um this is more more something that we'll hear during the Christmas season. The Magi, the Magi, Matthew chapter 2. This has so much to do with the queenship of Mary. When they come to visit Jesus, they want to find him. Are they astronomers? Are they astrologers? Are they kings? Are they representatives of, of kings from other nations? Are they like secretaries of state or, or ambassadors? It, it, 
it doesn't really matter. People talk about that, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but at one level it really doesn't because pe- people argue, are they Gentiles or, or Jews from other lands? But at, at the end of the day, what this is all about is who Jesus is and also who Mary is. And we're going to find out who she is really after the break. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. Be right back. This is The Kale Clark Show, giving you the confidence you need to bring the faith into everyday life. Hello, Proud Mary from CCR, great tune, also popularized by Tina Turner's 1971 cover with Ike Turner. One of the things that kind of broke her, but but hey, Mary on this Feast of the Queen of Mary, she's far from proud. She never gave in to the sin of pride, but we are proud of her as Catholics. You better believe that. And so it is a hard feast to explain sometimes to non-Catholics, other Christians. They don't quite get it. But what you should know is that there is a real biblical basis to this feast day. There really is. There really is. And it can actually help, I think, advance the ecumenical dialogue, as, as which is targeted. And, and Pope Benedict always reminded us of this. You know, when we, we engage in ecumenism, ecumenical dialogue, but with other Christians, what's the goal of that? It's not so that we can just kind of sit around the campfire together and sing kumbaya, agree to disagree, quote-unquote. No. The goal, he said, is corporate reunion. The reunion of all Christians in one body, the Catholic Church. And that's that's what it's all about. So how are people going to find their way home? Well, this could be a key here. And Mary is certainly involved in that. She wants people to know the full truth about her son. And one of the places you can find this, this idea of the queenship of Mary... Maybe the most preeminent place in the scriptures, there are other places, but in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and that's the famous account of the Magi that come to, to look for Jesus, for King Jesus. And, and when you read that, I'm not going to read the passage, you, you can look it up, you're probably pretty familiar with it. The three wise men, they're often known as the three kings. Are they kings? Again, we can, we can get in the weeds on that a little bit, but maybe save that for Advent or Christmas time. But really what's what's going on here is Matthew's telling us that a particular office, if Jesus is setting up the kingdom of God, if he's the son of David, who is the first son of David? Solomon, King Solomon. And if, and if the kingdom of David was called the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, and he's trying to set up the kingdom of God, then guess what? There's an office. If Jesus is the king, there needs to be restored another office, the office of what's called in Hebrew, the Geburah, or the Great Lady, the Great Lady. And this actually, this this noun occurs 15 times in the Old Testament. And it can mean the Queen, it can also mean the Queen Mother, the Queen Mother. And, and this is this is really the, the part that we're going to focus on here, the, the Queen Mother, when we talk about the feast today of the, the Queenship of Mary. This is... <laughs> This is interesting. In fact, in a lot of ancient societies around Israel, in that part of the world, this this was a, an actual position in a lot of different kingdoms. And th- this is a an office that was only surpassed by that of the king himself. And again, 
Matthew Matthew knows when he's writing his gospel, he's very familiar with the Old Testament. He, he's getting the nuances of a lot of the passages. And when you see the king's approach, the magi approach, Mary, and Jesus, as we can imagine him, seated on her lap as an infant, maybe about two years old or so, it's really referencing a passage from the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 2. You can, you can look this up, but here's essentially what happens here. There's this guy named Adonijah, Adonijah, and he's got Adonijah, we could say. <laughs> he's got, he's got Adonijah, let's go with that, that's better. Uh, so he, he has a request of the original son of David, King Solomon. But he doesn't dare approach the king himself. He doesn't say, you know, can I make an appointment with him? He doesn't do that. He actually goes through the Gebirah, the queen mother. And that, in this case, it's Bathsheba. Bathsheba, of course, is the mother of Solomon. So he go, what does this guy want, Adonijah? He actually wants to marry this gal named Abishag. Abishag. Um, was she, she was obviously quite beautiful. She wasn't really a hag. She was Abish hag. But no, she was gorgeous. He wanted to marry her. And she was Abishag the Shunammite. And so he, he, this guy Adonijah goes to Bathsheba and says, I pray that you would ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you. He will not refuse his mother to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. And Bathsheba says, very well, I will speak for you to the king. So she goes to King Solomon to talk to him on behalf of this guy, one of her subjects. And what happens? You can read this, by the way. First Kings chapter 2. And King Solomon, when she comes into the room, he stands up to meet, to meet her, to greet her. He bows down to Bathsheba. This is really interesting. And then he sits down on his throne. And then he has another seat, another throne, if you will, brought for the king's mother. And she sits down at his right hand. Now, okay, you think, what's the big deal there? He's just being nice to his mom. No, he's not. There's something more going on here. Because what is Bathsheba, what, what did she do with her husband, King David, her husband? In 1 Kings chapter 1, you can read this. Bathsheba, when she greets David, she bows with her face to the ground and does obeisance to David. Not, not, not because he's her husband, it's because he's the king. He's the king. Now, it's different when she talks to her son, Solomon. And, and she doesn't bow down. In fact, Solomon bows to her. What, what does that mean? It, it's not just, you could say, well, Solomon's just obeying the fourth commandment to honor his mother. That can't, that can't explain it by itself. Because one of the, the roles, one of the duties of the queen mother is to intercede for her subjects, to present their case to the king. And also the queen mother served as kind of an advisor for her son. In, in fact, there's a very famous passage um, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31. A lot of you guys are probably familiar with this. The famous Proverbs 31 woman. And it, and it describes this woman with in, incredible character and characteristics. And, and it's really a description of the queen mother of King Lemuel. That, uh, it was the king at that time. So check that out, Proverbs 31. It's all about a queen mother. So this was, a, this was an office in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Israel. And so 
people often ask, well, how did she come to be the the queen? You know, this, this has nothing to do with the British monarchy. We might have remembered the queen mum, you know, Queen Elizabeth's mum. No, 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 it has nothing to do with that. This is very, very common in the ancient world. Again, Solomon, he was a bit of a philanderer. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So who was he obviously can't select the queen uh, from amongst his wives. There would, there would be a huge brawl that would break out, probably a, sort of a um, women of wrestling kind of cage match that might take place. Um, that's going to create a lot of jealousy. He's not going to do that. He can't choose just one because there's so many. But when it comes to his mother, there can only be one. He's got a lot of wives, but he's got only one mother, and it's the queen mother. And that's who becomes the queen in the ancient world. And again, it's not just in Israel. It was also in a lot of other cultures, like the Hittites, a lot of cultures that, that lived around the Israelites. So it's, a, it's, it's sort of a commonplace thing. You can, I can tell you about, if you want, you can call me, I can talk about Ugaritic society, and I'm sure you probably don't want to hear about that unless you're having trouble sleeping. Um, but you can call me if you want, 888-914-9149. It's Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. But this is common in Egypt as well. And this happened. In fact, uh, in, in the book of Jeremiah, it, it sort of implies that the Gebira, the queen mother, actually had her own crown as well as her own throne. So this is, this is very, very interesting. Now, Israel kind of split up into the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, Judah, and then there's the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom didn't have a queen mother, but the south really did. Um, and it kind of got going with Bathsheba, continued on, and became a permanent feature. And there's all, all kinds of situations where, where the, the great lady, the queen mother, is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. And it's, it's the late great father, John Meyer, who recently passed away. He was a great scholar on Jesus and the Gospels. Um, I met him. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. He noted that when, when you read Matthew's Gospel, it looks at the genealogy of Jesus, and, and he actually traces the genealogy through the kings of Judah. Whereas in Luke's Gospel, he, he chooses descendants of David who are not kings. He just kind of picks different people in the genealogy. But So this idea of the king and the queen is really important for Matthew. And that's what happens when you look at Matthew chapter 2, when, when you see the Magi approaching what does it say in Matthew 2? I'll just read you a couple of verses. This is 9, 10, and 11 in Matthew 2. When they had heard the king, and this is Herod, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. You're listening to The Cale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. It's the Feast of the Queenship of Mary. So even, even the star that they follow is a symbol of the, the king in the line of David. Um, there's a great prophecy in the Old Testament about a star that would rise, signifying the, the Messiah. What, what about the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? You know, a lot of people say, and you probably heard homilies about this, that, well, gold means he's a king. It's kind of the, the color of royalty. Frankincense has to do with his divinity, that, he's, that Jesus is God. Because in worship, they use frankincense, incense. Don't get incensed about this, but I actually love incense. And the more, the merrier. I love the smells and bells 
So that's often used in the worship of God. What about myrrh? Well, this represents the death of Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ. In John's Gospel, when, when Jesus is buried, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, what do they do? They anoint Jesus' body and with the wrappings, and they use a mixture of myrrh and aloes. <laughs> so the, a lot of people say, well, you know, this, this really represents Christ's identity, his destiny. Okay, all that is true. I'm not saying that's not great preaching. That's fantastic preaching. But the real reason, in all likelihood, the Magi brought these gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, is because they're kind of luxury items. You know, If you're in Rodeo Drive, Beverly Hills, these are the kind of things you'd pick up if you're going to meet a world ruler. Don't forget, who visited the son of David in the Old Testament, Solomon, the Queen of Sheba, right? She came looking for wisdom, but she also brought a ton of gold. She brought gold and a great quantity of spices, it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, to Solomon, the son of David in Jerusalem. All of this, and if you read Psalm 72, Psalm 72 is all about Solomon. It's all about Solomon. What does it say? May the kings of Tarshish and of the isles render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. So this is wild. This has a lot to do with Solomon. And now we have another son of David that's sitting here, Jesus, King Jesus. If you read the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, um, chapter 3, chapter 4, it talks about Solomon perfumed with what? Myrrh and frankincense. So this is starting to become a little bit more clear, isn't it? So this is fulfilled. Matthew says this is being fulfilled. When the Magi come to to see our Lord, this is an exact recapitulation of what happened with King Solomon. Don't you see what's going on here? The kings paid homage to the the son of David in Psalm 72, and that's exactly what's going on here. They're paying homage to the divine son of David here in Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is the new Solomon. So everybody kind of would have got this in the first century, anybody, any Jewish person hearing that about this, you know, reading this, they, they're going to get this right away because they, they knew their Old Testament really, really well. And sometimes in the 21st century as Catholics, we've kind of lost sight of it a little bit. But here's the other person that's there. Okay, if Jesus is the king, don't forget, who else is there? His mother. Matthew takes great pains to say, and the child is there with his mother. And he doesn't mention Joseph. This is really interesting. Joseph is all over Matthew's gospel. He's always talking about Joseph had a dream. Joseph doesn't know what to do. Wants to be a righteous guy. Mary's really not mentioned that much, but she is mentioned here. And Joseph's not mentioned at all. Joseph's not mentioned at all. Was he there when when the magic came? I think he was there. Absolutely he was there. But Matthew doesn't mention that because it's all about the child and his mother, the king and the queen mother. So this is really interesting. Now, here, here's something else that will blow your mind. In that Psalm 72, that talks, a Psalm about Solomon and how the kings pay tribute to him, in Psalm 72, verse 14, it says this, From oppression and violence 
he redeems their life. Well, that's actually fulfilled, by the way, also in Matthew chapter 2 with the Magi, because they are spared probably certain death because they are warned not to go back to see Herod. Herod's like, hey, after you find him, come tell me where he is. I want to worship him too. I want to hang out with him. Uh, no, he wants to kill him, right? And, and quite possibly the Magi would have been slaughtered just like the holy innocents, all the children in and, in and around the vicinity of, 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 of Bethlehem were, were slaughtered by Herod uh, because he's trying to stamp out the king of the Jews. Of course, Herod was called the king of the Jews. He loved to call himself the king of the Jews. He wasn't really Jewish. He was Idumean, but but his, he was given the nickname king of the Jews. He kind of gave himself the nickname maybe because, uh, actually, I think Mark Antony, of all people, gave him that nickname. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's true. And he loved, he styled himself the king of the Jews. So when he hears about this king of the Jews, the Magi say, hey, where's this king of the Jews that was born? Oh, that would have raised alarm bells with Herod for sure. So in a sense, this, this idea of from oppression and violence, he redeems their life. They were warned not to go back to Herod, but to go home by another route. And uh, this is all in, in the background. So once again, this is typology at its finest. This is the idea that things, people, places, events in the old covenant time are fulfilled and surpassed by greater people, greater things, greater events in the new covenant. Jesus is not only a new Moses, he's a new son of David. He's a new Solomon. And, and by the way, what was Solomon really known for? His great wisdom, number one. Well, Jesus' wisdom is even greater than that. Uh, he has responses, answers that no one can possibly refute. You know, show me a coin. You know, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And everyone just kind of like, it's, like, it's a mic drop moment. You can't dispute with heavenly wisdom like this. The mind of Christ is far greater than even the wisdom of Solomon, the mind of Solomon. The other thing Solomon was really known for, by the way, was being an exorcist. There were exorcists, other exorcists in Jesus' time that would use these incantations and these special formulas that were said to have derived from Solomon himself when they were trying to cast demons out of people. Sometimes they worked. But Jesus doesn't need this stuff. He doesn't need a rigmarole. He doesn't need any accoutrements. He doesn't need any props. Uh, other exorcists would have something called the bulk stick. Sorry, the bunk stick. It was something uh, uh, made of a barris root. It was aromatic. They'd wave it under the person's nose, and they try to draw the demon out of the nose because that that's how the Egyptians thought that that uh, evil spirits would enter and exit the body through the nose, and it kind of you know creeped into. Israelite thought a little bit. So they wave this stick and it's got some spices on it. Old Spice maybe. I don't know. Um, old Spice Swagger. I don't know. So wave it under the nose and then the person will probably sneeze and then, well, there goes the demon. It worked. Maybe that's why people say Gesundheit. God bless you when you sneeze. You know, oh, you're free. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. If you read the Gospel of Mark, he just says, shut up, get out to the demons. Get out of here. And, and they have to obey. They have to obey. So th this is why people were amazed by him. It wasn't that there were other exorcists out there, but he's on another level. The quality of his exorcisms are, are unsurpassed. So all of this is kind of in the background here. And I just think it definitely influences Matthew's portrayal here. Mary is here with the child. And, and you maybe heard the title from Mary, Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. I think this is exactly what's going on here. Jesus is probably sitting on her lap, 
and she becomes his throne. He is wisdom personified. Forget the wisdom of Solomon. He is God incarnate, and, and, and she is his, his throne, if you will, on her, on her knee. And, and some people even say that, you know, the throne of grace that's mentioned in, in Hebrews, some, some spiritual writers have referred that to Mary. Approach the throne. She is there, your, your mother, your queen. Just, just as Adonijah in the Old Covenant approached the queen mother, knowing that it's highly unlikely that her, her son Solomon is going to refuse the request, this is where the intercession of Mary comes in. That she can bring a request to our Lord, and as long as they're in accord with God's will, then she has great influence. She has great sway, if you will. And I think it, it pleases our Lord if we go to, to Mary, if we go to the Queen Mother. So I, I just think this is absolutely central here. And this theme of Mary as the Gebirah, the Queen Mother, this fits right into Matthew's motif, salvation history. And that's, I mean, I could say a bunch of other stuff about this, but there are other places in, in, the, in the Old Testament as well where the Queen Mother is mentioned with respect to Jesus. Uh, Isaiah seven fourteen, uh, Behold, a virgin will conceive and, and bear a son. I'll talk about that maybe more at Advent time. It's a reference to an ancient Israelite king, but it also has reference to, of course, uh, Matthew says this is really ultimately a prophecy about the virginal conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. We could talk about that. But there are, there are a couple other uh, New Testament passages, and I won't get into this. It, you can study them on, on your own. In Luke's Gospel, the Annunciation scene in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, what does the Archangel Gabriel say to Mary? That Jesus will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God is going to give him something. The Lord God will give to him, what? The throne of his father, David. There we see, and, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, Jesus is going to assume this throne of David. And if that's the case, Mary, who the Archangel Gabriel is talking to, is going to be the queen mother. She's his mother. Uh, what about the visitation? What about the visitation? Uh, later on in Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45, well, Mary's kinswoman Elizabeth, she herself is pregnant with John the Baptizer, John the Baptist. What does she say? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? My Lord is always a reference to God, but also it's a reference to the King and the Messiah. If you read Psalm 110 verse 1, that's a psalm that Jesus refers to himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Finally, one, one last one. We've got to go to break now. But Revelation chapter 12 is another key passage. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She brings forth, she gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, you can say, obviously, this is Mary. Her son is the Messiah King who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And by the way, the rod of iron goes back to King David. It goes back to Psalm 2. If you read it, it it's basically a quote from Psalm 2 about the Davidic king. So again, if he is the successor to David's throne, Mary is the Gebirah. She is the queen. She is the queen mother, the great lady. The crown of 12 stars on her head in Revelation only makes it even 
more clear. So there's a great old covenant background here. And it really comes through again, mostly in Matthew chapter 2. And this theme is elsewhere in the Bible. But again, I think it's a, it can really help us when we talk to other Christians. They, they do tend to believe the Bible is the Word of God. Well, it says it right here. Maybe it, it's subtle, maybe, but, but it's very clear. I mean, Matthew's almost screaming at us that Mary is the Queen Mother. And today we celebrate the Queenship of Mary after her assumption. She's in the heavenly courts. And we ask her to intercede for her son, King, to her son, King Jesus, for us, for you and for me. You're listening to The K.O. Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888-914-9149. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. We'll be right back after this. Faith, facts, and fun. It's The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Uh, you might be familiar with those strains. That is, of course, Claire de Lune from the composer... Claude Debussy. And it's, uh, it's his birthday today, by the way. You know, he wrote that when he was only 28 years old. Very famous piece. It's been uh, done by so many great artists. And, you know, on this feast of the Queenship of Mary, Mary is like the moon. Jesus is like the sun. She, she best reflects the glory of God, uh, more so than any other creature. Greater than her, no one but God. So on this great Marian feast, I thought that would be kind of appropriate on Claude Debussy's birthday to play that tune, Claire de Lune. Hey, some other birthday notes to pass out, by the way. It's Brooke Taylor's birthday today, Producer Jim. Did you know that? So I do ha- now. Uh, yeah, you do <laughs> now. So, so ha- Happy birthday, Brooke. And Brooke, of course, uh, does such a great job filling in as a guest host here on the K.O. Clark Show. So I hope you're listening, Brooke, and we're praying for you. Thanks for all that you do. And belated happy birthday notes, by the way, also to Sister Jean. It was Sister Jean's birthday yesterday. Uh, Rich Brzezinski, Rich Pye, uh, our VP of Marketing here, alerted me to this. And, of course, Sister Jean rose to prominence in 2018. She's turning 104 this year. Can you imagine? 104 she turned yesterday. And uh, she's the chaplain, of course, of the Loyola University of Chicago men's basketball team. They made history with their underdog run to the Final Four. March Madness of 2018. She traveled around the country with the team, captured everybody's hearts, not only in Chicago, but all around the country and all around the world. She was born yesterday uh, on that one. She wasn't born yesterday. That's for sure. She's 104, but she was born on August the 21st, 1919 in San Francisco. Sister Jean Dolores Bertha Schmidt of the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So happy birthday, Sister Jean. She's a great friend of Relevant Radio, by the way. Uh, she's been a guest on Relevant Radio, and uh, she's older than the internet. She's older than television. She's older than sliced bread, and that's not something I just made up. It's actually true. Things have changed quite a bit in her life, especially in media, but um, I know she's praying for us, and uh, she supports our work, and we support you as well, Sister Jean. God bless you. God bless you. Well, I got an email, by the way, which I have to share from from Debbie, who's also, speaking of San Francisco, who's listening in San Francisco on 1260 AM KSFB, and she wrote to me today saying, I heard Kale mention that he was going to talk about Johnny football. As far as I can tell, he did not. Will he talk about him today? Well, Debbie, the wait is over. I, I've been promising to talk about this, uh, but I haven't had opportunity to. We just had so many other great topics, great feast days, and, and I wish I had more time. But we are going to talk about it now, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, a new Netflix documentary. Everybody's kind of in football fever right now the nfl is getting going exhibition games are happening college football season is coming kids are back in school on campus it's in the air and one of the greatest legends of all time 
had a spectacular rise and just as spectacular of a fall is, of course, Johnny Manziel, who was given the moniker Johnny Football. A new Netflix documentary came out in the Untold series. It's called Untold Johnny Football. Here's the trailer. Check it out. He's taken on Rolling Stones Beatles status. Manziel Madness has spawned the nickname Johnny Football. Johnny Football. Johnny Football. Johnny Football. When I got everything that I wanted, I think I was the most empty that I've ever felt inside. I think the way that I played quarterback was just a different kind of football. They couldn't stop it. He transcended college football and also sports. But I had a bone to pick with the NCAA. The organization continues to profit off student athletes. People have been making millions on the back of Johnny. I remember this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, I've got 30 grand for you to sign autographs. And once that happened for the first time, it was like game on. After that, I saw a different side of him. When you take one step onto a slippery slope, it goes pretty quick. You have to be careful keeping too much expectations on a young man. Johnny, I sang it was win or lose, we booze. And it was real true. It was just direct self-sabotage. It was probably a $5 million bender. He had this fear in his eyes. The money and the fame is eating him alive. You have to look back and think, were you ever going to be satisfied? Was enough ever enough? Yeah, it's an intriguing documentary, to say the least. Uh, Johnny Manziel burst onto the scene in 2012, the first freshman in the NCAA ever to win the coveted Heisman Trophy. And he, he, at times watching him play, it looked a little bit like a dad playing with his kids in the backyard. I mean, he was just running circles around people. Now, the the first, this isn't a perfect documentary by any stretch of the imagination, Um but the the first half, if, especially if you if you love football and if you if you want to see the the great highlights, the first thirty minutes are really, really they won't disappoint you. And it goes back to his high school days. It's a little bit like Friday Night Lights, if you remember that TV show and 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 that movie, that book. Uh, he grew up in Kerrville, Texas, and, and played there. And when he became the starting quarterback on his high school team, the first play that he ever ran went for an eighty yard touchdown, just a quarterback draw run. Nobody touched him. Went for a touchdown. It was called back on a hold. So they were backed up 10 yards, and the coach calls on the play from the sideline. It's the exact same play. And he's, he's thinking, you got to be kidding me. You're going to run the exact same play? Well, they ran it again, and this time it went for a 90-yard touchdown. It was almost a, a, an exact replay. Nobody touched him. And, and that just sets the stage. He became a dominant high school player, uh, went to Texas A&M. It was their first year in the SEC Southeastern Conference, which is really the closest thing to the NFL that that there is in college football. Uh, it really is maybe the best pipeline to the NFL. It's probably it's the best conference, let's face it. Um, I know people are talking about the Big Ten with their new teams now, but it's still not close in my mind. It always intrigued me that nobody in the SEC, nobody in the Southeastern Conference could ever tackle this guy. And I, I, that's why that's that's why I kind of thought he, he would be successful in the NFL, but that was far from the case far from the case um but yeah he really it's interesting there was this kind of tipping point in, in the documentary where uh texas a&m texas a&m defeats really upsets the juggernaut alabama the crimson tide coached by catholic <laughs> nick saban coach nick saban coach saban if you're listening which is highly unlikely i'd love to interview you come on the show but uh that that was a monumental upset and after that game he, he really johnny football he got that moniker 
uh, became a national household name. You might re- recall him. He, he probably was it for a little while, as big as the Beatles, as big as the Rolling Stones. It was more than a sports story, but but it was all too much for him. He really had a, a deer in the headlights look at one point, and um, he really wasn't studying. He, he really wasn't taking care of himself. He was doing a lot of partying, drinking a lot. Um, the substance abuse continued and got even worse, including drugs, uh, as he got into the pros. He eventually was drafted in the first round uh, by Cleveland. A lot of people thought maybe things would have turned out differently if he had gone to the Houston Texans, who had the number one pick. There's some rumor that they might draft him. The owner of the Texans heard that Johnny had come to meet with them. Things went well with the meetings, but then it, word got back to him. Johnny went on the golf course, drank a lot of beers, and threw his clubs into a pond um, at River Oaks Golf Club in the Houston area. That got back to the owner. Ugh, I'm not sure I want to draft this guy, making the face of the franchise. People thought the Dallas Cowboys were going to draft him later on in the first round in 2014. And maybe if he had been in Texas, there would have been some pressure on him in his home state to, to get his act together, to stay on the straight and narrow. They passed on him, drafted Zach Martin, offensive lineman from Notre Dame, who, by the way, is to this day the best player on the offense on that team. They made the right choice. He goes to Cleveland at pick number 22, and he absolutely sabotaged his career. He was far from home, but that, that can't be the excuse. He spent zero hours, 0.0 hours logged on his iPad watching film. You can't do that as an NFL quarterback. He didn't take it seriously. He went on all these benders, substance abuse, as I said, self-sabotage, as you heard in the clip. It, it, it's it's an, Tried to take his life at one point, said the gun malfunctioned. Uh, pushed his girlfriend out of a moving car at one point. I mean, it, it's just an absolute disaster. He just did not have the people in his life to that he needed to help him. And it, it's a great tragedy. And I hope he's okay. We need to pray for this guy because even at the end of the movie, he's still shown drinking, smoking stuff. I hope he's okay. Um, and I hope that he, he gets his life back together and finds finds peace, finds peace. And But it, it, it's, it really is... Um, Classic tale, cautionary tale, but check it out. Check it out. That's uh, Untold, Johnny Football. If you're a football fan, you'd enjoy it. Um, it's pretty clean, too. Uh, in terms of PG stuff, uh, you don't need to worry about that too much. So there you go. This has been the Kale. I did talk about it at the end of the day. I did. This is the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Jim Shaper produced. Patrick Alog took your phone calls. Stay tuned. Keep it locked on Relevant Radio. Take it away, Michaela. Thank you for listening to my daddy.